Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. There are all sorts of um, cute vignettes from Luther's life and history, and one of the ones that gets repeated, even though we don't have a really solid foundation for the words that Luther might have actually said, was what's called Luther's heroic prayer. There was a time when his good friend and colleague, Philip Melanchthon, the author of the Augsburg Confession and the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, fell gravely ill. And people were pretty sure that the Lord was going to call him home. So Luther made his way to Melanchthon's bedside. And according to at least one person's record, Luther prayed to the Lord, God, I forbid you from taking Melanchthon. We need him now. I need him. You simply cannot call him home yet. And sure enough, Melanchthon got better, recovered from his illness, recovered to full health. And so then the rumors started to spread that Luther had the magic words. Somehow Luther knew how to appeal to God to get exactly what it was that he wanted. Now, of course, other people read this and heard about the rumors and said, that can't be. After everything that Luther himself has taught us about prayer, it can't be that somehow Luther has some secret sauce, like what we put on a Big Mac, that enables God to listen to his prayer specifically and to do specifically what he asks. So there's a question for you. Did Luther know something about prayer that maybe we've forgotten. Now, when we gather together as a congregation for worship, and even when we gather together for potlucks downstairs or for special events in people's houses, if I happen to be there, usually I'm the one that's called upon to pray. Pastor, will you say grace for us? Pastor, will you give us a blessing? Pastor, will you give the invocation at the opening of our club or gathering or social event? Why is the pastor always the one who's called upon to pray? Well, again, people have that same idea that somehow three years of seminary training and a year of vicarage and then years of experience of leading God's people and reading the Bible and doing worship somehow gives us a better access to God through our prayers than mere Christians, the baptized people of God. At least I assume that's why I'm asked to pray. It's always a great pleasure, by the way, when you are present at a gathering and the head of the household or somebody else says, you know what, pastor, I'm going to go ahead and pray for you and for us. So what's going on here with Luther, with people asking the pastor to pray, with the whole conversation about heroic prayer? I really think what it comes down to is not that people are worried they don't have the right words. I think that's a little bit of it. We don't want to sound foolish when we're praying. It's why people are terrified of public speaking. It's why we have Toastmasters clubs. We figure the pastor can string together a couple of sentences and not sound like a fool. And we're not sure that we can pull off the same challenge. But I don't really think. That's our issue with prayer. I think the issue that people have with prayer, at least the people that I've 
counseled as a pastor over 19 years is not the words, it's confidence. Confidence that God is listening. Confidence that God cares. Confidence that whether I string together the most eloquent sequence of words and phrases I can come up with, whether I read the words from a book or whether I just stumble through something in a moment of crisis, we are not certain that God is listening or that God cares. Look at Abraham's prayer from our Old Testament lesson for this morning. Abraham is not praying an eloquent prayer. It's not one of those beautiful, flowery prayers that we sometimes pray in Elizabethan English with the these and the thous that we hear at royal weddings and at opening ceremonies that we think, oh, wow, that was a really beautiful prayer. Abraham is basically just bargaining with God. Hey, Lord, what, what if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom? Not, oh, dearest Lord, thou who rulest over all cities and over all the countryside, who knowest the hearts of men and the minds of mere mortals, I supplicate thee that if thou findest 50 righteous people in Sodom, that thou mightst turn thy face away in thy mercy. No, he just says, God, what if, what if there are 50? And it's not that Abraham has this sense that he is this really fantastic person that God has to listen to. I don't think he's humble bragging when he says, Lord, listen to me one more time. I who am but dust and ashes. He knows who he is. He knows the kind of things that go on in his heart, the kind of things that go on in his mind. And he lays it right out there for God. He says, look, Lord, I know that I, I'm nothing special. But, but what if there's 40 people? <laughs> what if there's 30? And, and Lord, don't get angry with me, but I, I, I'm just going to push you a little bit. What, what if there's five or 10? What makes Abraham able to stand before the Lord of the universe, even knowing that he is dust and ashes and a sinner like you and I, and still bargain with God, if it is not his trust and confidence? Abraham knows God. Kone, not savoir, right? Deb, who's still working on her French, Deaconess Emily, uh, get the heads up in the air. My two girls who wish they didn't know about Kanet and Savoir, they know the difference. There's a difference between knowing about the prime minister, knowing that he is the member of parliament for our riding, Papineau knowing that he lives on the governor general's grounds and actually knowing Justin, being able to call him up on the phone. Abraham knows God and therefore he trusts him. He doesn't look at him as some distant figure who can't be bothered to listen. He doesn't look at him as some God that couldn't care less what's going on in Abraham's life. Abraham knows him. He trusts him and therefore has the confidence to go to him, even with his very basic garden variety prayer. Now, in our gospel reading for today, Jesus does give his disciples specific words to pray, which is standard operating procedure for any Jewish rabbi. Any rabbi who is leading a group of disciples is going to teach them 
a special prayer. It's like their prayer. Kind of like Luther's morning and evening prayer that we come to learn when we do our evening services. I thank you, my heavenly father, through Jesus Christ, your dear son, that you have graciously kept me this day. Right? So that's why the disciples are coming to Jesus and saying, John the Baptist taught his disciples a specific prayer to get access to God. Will you do the same thing? So Jesus does. But it's not like any Jewish prayer any of them would ever have heard before. See, if you're a good Jew, most of your prayers are going to start something like, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. For you have established and created the world in six days and continue to lift it up and govern it by your almighty providence, etc., etc., etc. And then eventually, at some point, you might get into some requests. But no, Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. Not blessed Lord God, king of the universe, distant creator. No, Jesus says, he's your father. Go to him in confidence. Don't worry about the words you're going to say. And in fact, here's a real simple prayer. Like, our father, your name is holy. Let your will be done. Give us our daily bread. Forgive our sins just as we are forgiving everyone else. And do not put us to the test. Amen. That's a pretty simple prayer. But what Jesus is trying to do is not give the special words. Jesus knows that isn't the problem. It isn't that we don't know the words or that once we know them, suddenly we become prayers. It's about knowledge of God. It's about knowing God. It's about confidence, the confidence Abraham had. The confidence Jesus as God's son has, whom he also gives to you, who through your baptisms are also sons and daughters of God. And that's why Jesus then adds on this parable, which can be a little hard to follow because we got a lot of friends happening in this parable. You almost need to do a diagram. It's like there's a friend who comes to the friend who goes to the other friend. And before you know, it, we got friends all over the place. But really, the word friend is not the most important word in that parable. It's actually a word that comes up a little bit later that only appears once in the entire New Testament. And because through the ages, we have convinced ourselves, I believe in our sinful nature, that prayer is dependent on you and I and our words and who we are as people, we've misinterpreted that word. And I'm not the only one. Lots of people have worked in the Middle East have said, yeah, we're, we missed the boat on this parable. See, here's the situation. There's no Super 8, Motel 6, Marriott. There's none of these things in the ancient Middle East. When you're traveling, you come into a village and you knock on the closest door, say, I can't go any further tonight. Can you show me hospitality? Give me a place to stay. And so this person has come into town, knocked on the door. And of course, it's come in, friend. Like one of my daughters used to call everybody friend. Hi, friend. Hi, friend. Come in, friend. And then you don't just give them a bed, right? You give them food. You give them sustenance and water. You wash their feet. It's the whole nine yards. The problem is this particular house has no bread. Now, it just so happens the person knocked on this person's door. They could very well have come to the next house or the house after that or the other house. But they came to this one. And this person has an obligation to look after this visitor, because if they don't, 
this village gets put on the map as the unhospitable village. So friend goes to the friend next door. Just had somebody come stay the night. I have no bread. Can you get up and give us some bread so that I can show hospitality? Now, this next door neighbor friend is in bed with his kids. He's got everybody settled down and he really has no motivation internally to get up and get bread. But he knows that if he doesn't get up and give bread to his neighbor tomorrow, everyone is going to hear about it because that friend will just have to go to the next house over and say, well, why didn't you just go to the neighbor? Oh, he was in bed with his kids. He couldn't bother getting out of bed. And that's why the way that this parable should really read is even though he will not get out of his bed because the man is his friend, yet because of his sense of shame, not impudence, sense of shame, he will do it. And then Jesus says, and will not God do the same for you? Do you see how this parable is all about knowledge of God, knowing God, having confidence in God? He says, look, if your neighbor, because he doesn't want to look bad in front of the whole community, will get up and give bread. Do you not think God will listen to your prayers and address them? That's what that parable is about. And it makes sense then why Jesus goes on to say, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. If you have a child come to you to ask for an egg, are you going to give them a scorpion? They ask for a fish. Are you going to give them a snake? No, of course not. So Jesus says, if you who are evil, by the way here, a little aside, he's talking to his disciples. This is not the crowd. He's talking to his disciples. Peter, James, John, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, do you not think your father will give you the Holy Spirit to encourage you and exhort you and comfort you and pull you through this valley of tears and help you love and serve your neighbor? So you see, Luther did know something that we've forgotten. Luther knew who God was. He didn't see him as some remote creator. He didn't see him as someone watching from a distance. He knew him as his father. And what father doesn't listen to every complaint and cry of their children? Doesn't mean we give them money every time they ask. Doesn't mean we take them to Disney World every winter when they beg us to go. But believe me, we listen. And so does your father in heaven. And so be bold and don't worry about the words and don't try and go and pull out a book. Do like Abraham. When you're in a spot, when you feel the anxiety of the world coming down on you, when you, even though you are dust and ashes and a sinner for whom Jesus died, need God, then go boldly like Luther did. Say, Lord, you've promised that you would hear me. You promised that you would be there for me. You sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. I know you won't withhold anything from me. Listen to your servant. Have confidence. God cares. And for the sake of Jesus, his son, he does listen. In the name of Jesus Christ.
Amen.